This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. Because like God expressed himself to me as a father and that I was a son. And for the first time in my life, I understood what it meant to be a son. And I understood what, what a father really was. And I never had a bad example of a father. I had no example of a father. But this huge emotional revelation just took place in my life that transformed me probably forever. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine and you've joined us for another conversation with a special guest about their life, faith and testimony. If you would like a free sample copy of the magazine, just head to our website, premierchristianity.com. So my guest on the show today is Ari Sorko-Ram. Ari is the director of Ma'oz Israel, a messianic Jewish organization dedicated to reaching Israel with the good news of Jesus. Raised in America, the former actor and police officer now resides in Israel and is also the author of the book To the Jew First. Ari, welcome to the show. Well, shalom, shalom, Sam. Nice to talk to you and to see you on Zoom. Absolutely. It's great to be able to uh, connect, even though we're in completely different parts of the world. Um, we always like to start here on the show by hearing about a person's early life. So tell me a little bit about where you were when you were growing up as a child and what life was like. Well, actually, my, uh, my parents, of course, immigrated uh, from uh, Europe. It was during the time of the pogrom and uh, from a <clears throat> Russian Jewish background. And uh, my, my father met my mother actually on the boat coming over, she was coming over with her mother and he was uh, my grandmother's doctor on the boat. And so that's how he met my mother. And uh, in the fullness of time, after they came to the United States, they, uh, they married. And then of course, uh, had, um, now my mother had suffered quite a bit during the program. She had seen most of her family killed. And so she, it was very traumatic. She never really quite recovered from all of that. And uh, when I was, um, she had seven children, however. Uh, by the time I was two years old, there were a lot of conflicts without going into details. The family just sort of uh, fell apart. Uh, my father, I think he just went back to Europe. And uh, <clears throat> my mother was not able to really deal with the, the family just because of her emotional situation. And so six of the children went one direction. And uh, then I went another direction. And from the age of two, I was basically separated from my family. I, was, I didn't really know my father because I left it too and, and didn't see my mother or my siblings actually until I was an adult. And although I had seen my mother one time, I think when I was about five years old for about a 30 minute meeting. So really I was raised totally independent, uh, separate from uh, my family. And uh, I was in a uh, school that was funded by a large trust fund. Uh, it was in Michigan. And actually it was a, a nice school, but I had no knowledge of family. I had just knowledge of basically uh, community uh, living because at that time, this was uh, during the, um, uh, of course, the late 40s and early 50s, that uh, a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism and being Jewish was not a popular, popular thing. And so I was always made aware that uh, being Jewish was not a good thing. And how much of your Jewish identity, I guess, did you kind of understand? Because given you were kind of cut off from family, I know in Judaism, family is a massive part of, of culture. So clearly you knew you were Jewish and that was a part of your identity. But, but did you feel slightly cut off from that because of the family situation? Totally cut off. And uh, everybody made it very clear that I was Jewish. And uh, in fact, you know, we in the Jewish community, you have like two names. They give you the American name and then your middle name is always your Jewish name. You know, in this particular school, they wouldn't use my Jewish name, which was Benjamin. You always made aware that you were Jewish and there was something wrong with you. Right. And, but not being raised up in my family environment, so I didn't have the cultural support. I was in this um, paramilitary type school, boys school, 
And every summer, all of the uh, kids would uh, always go home, you know, to their, uh, their families. Of course, I didn't because <laughs> there really wasn't any home to go to. And so I would stay there on the campus and there would be a skeleton crew of uh, staff there. And basically that's what I would do for the two and a half months over the summer. And, um, but uh, one year uh, there was an actual, they said, listen, we have a, a summer camp that you can go to if you want to, and you don't have to stay here on the campus. Well, to me, I thought that was a terrific idea because I had never really done anything, you know, everybody else could go and I stayed. So I thought that was a terrific idea. And, and uh, so I went to this camp and of course it was one of these uh, summer camps that they had a religious side and they had a non-religious side. Of course, I was the only Jewish person there and uh, I, I don't know if it was a Baptist thing or, you know, I, I had no idea. The religious side, they made a lot of noise and they were in a tent. So I wasn't going to go there for sure. So I liked the non-religious side, which was a much smaller group. And uh, so I went to that and there was a young couple that really took to me and uh, I had never really been, you know, somebody put that much attention to me actually in my life. I had a really terrific time in this camp and, um, you know, I was on the secular side, so they didn't do anything but just basically, um, um, you know, just love on me, basically. So I was very impressed. And at the end of the camp, this young couple came to me and they said, thank you very much. And I said, no, I want to thank you for this terrific time. They said, no, we're thanking you for your ancestors. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, because of your ancestors, we found our Messiah, you know, and we found how to deal with our sin. Well, of course, I'm a 12-year-old kid, and I have no idea what <laughs> they're talking about. But, you know, if I had suspenders, I would have pulled them. You know, I said, well, okay, you know. And so they, and then they said to me, well, how do you Jews deal with that? Well, I knew a little bit about my Judaism. I knew about, you know, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. I said, oh, we have what we call Tashlik. We, you know, we throw our sins into the sea, you know, and, and we have, you know, we have things that we do. We have our prayers and, but I really didn't have an answer, but I said, listen, I, I really enjoy the camp. I will look, I will study and I'll bring you back an answer next year. If you let me come to camp next year. <laughs> that was the deal. And um, I didn't really know what I was getting into because I'd never really, everybody thought the Jews know everything about the Bible. I knew almost nothing. So I went, I went back and I decided to read the Bible. Now, that was the most difficult thing that I could have ever done. And uh, I began reading, and it was really hard reading. And I didn't really have anybody to talk to. And I'd ask people, and they didn't know. As I began to read about Abraham, and I, I realized that, wait a minute, you know, this is pretty good that I really am, uh, you know, a descendant of Abraham. You know, that's who I am. And that's the first time I really had any identity, uh, positive, you know, identity in my life. The other was, you're a Jew. And, uh, you know, you killed, you killed Christ, you know, and, wow. and I was like, well, I don't even know him, you know, so how can yeah. I, do that? So there was a stigma and uh, especially where I lived. And so I was starting to feel kind of positive about myself. And, uh, it took me several months, believe it or not, just to get, you know, I'm still in the book of Genesis. You know? <laughs> it's a big book. It was hard, hard reading. Well, then towards the, the end of the year, I started getting into the next book, the book of Exodus, and it was devastating to me. Now, I didn't understand a lot, but I began to understand that if I did this and I did that, uh, I was cursed, and I got it. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm just, now I, I become bar mitzvah. I'm 13 years old. I'm bar mitzvah. Now I'm responsible for me. You know, it says, if you do this, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be blessed. Things are going to be good. If you do this, you're cursed. And I realized, wow, now I understand why everybody hates Jews, you know, because I'm cursed and I'm a Jew. And I, I, I kind of went into a depression. You know, we were pretty bad people. You know, we did some pretty bad things and I'm one of them and that's it. But I actually just stopped studying. I said, there's no reason to study. There's no reason to excel. There's no reason to do anything. And I was, I was just devastated as a kid. And then I began to get angry. And I said, and I thought about this couple and uh, they knew, and I said, ah, they knew I was cursed. That was my simple way of explaining something that I didn't understand. I was failing. I went from, you know, like A and B grades to D <laughs> grades. Huh. And, and so I was just, uh, I had lost my motivation just about for anything. I got to the camp, I didn't even register. I just went looking for this couple and uh, I found them. They were there. 
And I looked at them and, and, I, and I hollered at them. I, I, was, I was small for my age at the time. I, I, I've grown since then. But um, to me, they were towering tall people. And I said, you knew that I was cursed. You knew that if I studied, you know, the Bible, I would find that I was cursed. And so they started laughing, you know, and to me, I was used to people laughing at me. So I said, see, and then you're laughing at me. And they said, no, 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 no. So we're not laughing at you. We're laughing with you. Did you go further? Did you continue to read? I said, no, there's nothing to read. I said, no, 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 no. They said, there's so much more for you as a Jew. And something happened in that incident, that, that instant, that I just said, wow. I had a sparkle of hope because I had lost all hope. I mean, I was just totally devastated. I was alone. I didn't have anybody to turn to. And I said, this is it for me. This is a world, dismal world before me and nowhere to go. And, but when they said there was more, something happened. This is always very emotionally for me when I talk about it. So hopefully I can hold my composure. And something just sparked inside of me, a hope. And I said, wow, there's more. And it was like, like there was a, like a light down in the end of the tunnel. If I just keep running I could get there or something and uh, so for the next oh I guess a couple of weeks they went to the script they didn't go through the New Testament they just went through the Old Testament and they start showing me uh, even scriptures that I never would have understood in Deuteronomy and in the prophets and they so this is for the Jews it says this is for you it says it started with you you know I came to faith and uh, I mean it wasn't I wasn't critical about the Messiah he could have been a midget, as far as I was concerned, you know, you know, they say that when you're, when you're healthy, you're very critical of doctors, but when you're sick, you're happy if a good veterinarian can help you. You know what I mean? And so, so I was just so relieved that there was an answer for me, and that for the first time in my life, I I was I felt positive about being a Jew, and I said, wow, this was something that God has specifically, you know, done for me. You know, they said that through the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the servant. He says, there's a victory here. He's going to get you back into relationship. And, and, and they told me, it says, this is why God chose Abraham. He says, this is why he chose you as a people. It says, it's about your ancestors. And he, and he made this promise to you first. But the most significant thing probably happened to me was maybe about four or five days later, I was in my, you know, they have little like cabins like. And I was sitting in my bunk bed by myself because I would do that a lot. And I was, uh, all of a sudden, it was easier to read the Bible. <laughs> I was actually beginning to understand some things, which I was amazed. I said, wow, you know, I didn't understand that before. And then something happened. This is something that's like it happened yesterday. And this was 1954. All of a sudden, I had not ever known my father and I didn't know my mother. So I didn't really understand what family was about. And I definitely didn't understand what father was about, but something happened and it was like the presence of God just came down upon me, just this little 13 year old boy. And I knew it was the presence of God, but something that was different about it. It was like the presence of God, but it was a father. It was like God expressed himself to me as a father and that I was a son. And for the first time in my life, I understood what it meant to be a son. And I understood what, what a father really was. And I never had a bad example of a father. I had no example of a father. But this huge emotional revelation just took place in my life that transformed me probably forever. And all of a sudden, I understood that the awesome God, we as a Jewish people always look at God with great reverence. He's God. You know, he's awesome. He's holy. And and you can't get near, you can't get close, be careful. You know, even the word Kodesh, uh, Kadosh, you know, which is holy, it comes from a, an Akkadic word, uh, which also means be careful. And, and all of a sudden, this awesome God, you know, just presented himself to me as a father. And that transformed my life. I noticed when, in telling that story, you spoke about coming to faith. And yes. I noticed as well, you didn't, didn't use the phrase, I became a Christian. And of course, uh, you have also used the phrase, you are Jewish. So for those yes. listening who may, may not have heard that term before of Messianic Judaism, mm -hmm. and might have expected you to say, I became a Christian. Right. 
it's interesting, you know, God always relates to people in forms of covenants. And then he, then he um, created people, you know, from the descendants of Abraham and through Jacob and, and the tribes of Israel. And then he gave Israel another covenant. It was called the Mosaic covenant, which a lot of people don't understand. Uh, the covenant was not to make Israel holy or righteous. It was a spiritual examination to show Israel that they had a deadly spiritual disease and so did the rest of the world. But Israel was chosen to be tested and to fail. What people don't understand, if Israel would have succeeded in the test that was given in the Mosaic Covenant, in other words, if you do this, you're blessed, if you do this, you're cursed. If they would have succeeded, there would be no Messiah. In other words, you'd have to become Jewish and then keep all the Mosaic Covenant in order to have a relationship with God. The purpose of that covenant was to fail. By failing the test, Israel succeeded in the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant which was to fail so that the whole world, like it says in Roman, Israel was tested, but the whole world was proven guilty. And so people seem to say, well, Israel failed, so God is doing it something with us now. No, the purpose was to fail. In other words, so that Israel would look to God for the solution. Then the, the third covenant, which is the new heart covenant, is to solve the problem. Okay, the deadly disease, give us a new heart and a new spirit. What people don't understand you know, when, when the new covenant was given, it was given to the house of Israel and house of Judah. It says in Jeremiah, new covenant, I will give to the house of Israel and house of Judah, not like the covenant, the Mosaic covenant I gave in Horeb, but the covenant which they broke. But this is my covenant. I will take my law, the same law, I will put it in their inward parts, and I will write it on their hearts. And he says, I'll give them a new heart and a new spirit. So the whole purpose of the new covenant is to solve the curses that Israel was living under, and so was the rest of the world, by the way, under the Mosaic Covenant. So now they can have the blessings. They still have God's same standards. They won't do things in the flesh now. They'll serve in the newness with a new heart, with a new spirit. What the New Covenant doesn't do, it doesn't change your gender, and it doesn't change your nationality. In other words, if you're British, when you come to faith, you don't become Chinese. You don't become an Israeli. If you're a Gentile, you don't have to become Jewish, like in the book of Galatians, it says, you know, the Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to be a believer. The Jews had a hard time believing, understanding that in the first century. It took them 30, 40 years, you know, at least 20 years to figure out Gentiles do not have to go into the Abrahamic covenant to come into the new covenant. But the Jews don't have to leave the Abrahamic covenant to come into the new covenant. So coming back to your story, just for a moment, um, I know you went into the police and then you actually had a career in acting in television and film. I'd love to know what was your acting career highlight? When I graduated out of high school, I went into the military and I went to Europe. And because I had a knack for languages, I went into special assignment. And because I was athletic, I went into sports. So I played sports in Europe on the French national rugby team. And then I played for the army uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, football league. And from there I signed with the, in the NFL, the National Football League with St. Louis Cardinals, and I signed with them for a year or so. And then from there, I went back to college, uh, undergraduate and graduate school as a research psychologist. And from there, I went to the sheriff's department because I wanted to study behavioral research. So I was a sheriff in Los Angeles County. And then from there, they asked me, a friend of mine, Dean Martin, who's a well-known actor, and some people said, I'd like you to play detective, because I was a detective. They screen test me for Screen Gems, which is now Warner Brothers. The next thing I know, I was busy uh, doing films. I've done well over 100 and some, 120 films, television and, and, and movie screen. Was Hollywood a straightforward place or a difficult place to be a Messianic Jew? Uh, it was a challenge. In interestingly enough, a large percentage of everybody in Hollywood is Jewish. And so that I had a popular connection with a lot of my friends, even though I was Messianic Jewish, um, it was just, you know, it was sort of growing. It was not the huge thing that it is uh, much bigger than it is now. And, um, um, and because I had, uh, by that time, I'd been a believer for quite a long time and had a lot of knowledge. And of course, had a, a lot, and I did studies at the University of Judaism you know, the rabbinical school. So I, I had a lot, a lot of knowledge of the Jewish thing. So I was not really challenged uh, that much. Everybody knew what I believed. And um, they hired me because I was an actor and hopefully a fairly decent one. 
And uh, no, I, I had very, very uh, little conflict uh, with the issues. Uh, I did have challenges because the moral fiber of the people in Hollywood was challengeable, you know, was, was challenging. And I always had to stand very firm and just say, listen, I don't drink, I don't smoke, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a swearer, you know, and, and I don't play parts that do. And uh, so uh, I got, I was known that don't even talk to him about this movie. <laughs> no. That's, uh, I imagine, as very admirable starts to take, I imagine if you're in Hollywood today, it might be difficult to find a part where there's no swearing, no drinking. Yeah, I think, no... I think things have gone downhill in Hollywood. I think the moral fiber of the, the film and the media interest, uh, industry has uh, is, uh, deteriorated to a level that it's, uh, it's, it's very heartbreaking. Such a powerful media is now being used uh, for very dubious purposes. And it's not something that I would pursue at this point or, or recommend uh, people pursuing unless it's strictly in the, in the believing in the honor, honorable environment. You, uh, as you mentioned, had a very varied career from NFL to uh, sheriff's department to then um, career in acting. And then as you, as you hinted at, you then moved from acting to Israel. So tell me a little bit about how that happened. Well, the reason actually I came back to Israel is uh, the Israel was doing a, the Israeli version of the Entebbe film. So I had signed a contract with uh, Warner Brothers uh, to actually do the Entebbe film. And uh, then uh, I had met Shira, who was my wife. So she, we had some mutual friends, Jack Hayford, who was in California, and a few other people. And she was there trying to find Messianic Jews that would be willing to come back and immigrate to Israel on the law of return. And because there were no really believers here in the country, Messianic Jewish believers, maybe a handful, and to start something here in the country. So we met in Hollywood through some mutual friends and some friends of the Hollywood Reporter. And she gave me a challenge to come to uh, Israel. And I said, listen, I just signed a TV contract and I'm committed for the next couple of years. Uh, so, and I can't break this contract. Well, she showed me a film that she had done with Egal Yadin about Megiddo. And it was excellent. In fact, it had won the New York Film Festival Award that year for this documentary. And I said, wow, she's pretty qualified. And so I, I'll tell you what I do. I said, I have a list of 23 things. And if the Lord can answer these things in the next few weeks, I'll come for a year. Well, within two weeks, everyone was answered. I had a job in Israel. I was able to get out of the series without being blacklisted. I mean, it was like right down the list. So I said, okay, well, I'm coming for a year. I thought I was coming just for a year. I told my agents, told everybody I'm leaving. And most everybody is Jewish anyway, so they understood. Okay, you're going back to Israel. That's your, what we call Mishigaz, that's your craziness. Uh, go there for a year, sabbatical, and come back. Okay, and come, and come back to work. So I, I came to Israel, and uh, not shortly after that, I realized God was calling me back to Israel. I saw the need. Uh, and, and the Lord began to speak to me, and I saw that Shira's vision and my vision was very, very similar, the importance of restoring the Jewishness of the gospel and to raise up uh, an Israeli body. It's not the message of a synagogue. It's not the message of a church. It's the message of the Messiah who came to deal with the sin problem, restore relationship with our Jewish people back to the God of creation. And so, uh, you know, the first year that I was there, we actually were married. And that's when we began uh, the work. And when we started, you could count all the Israeli Sabra believers, meaning those who were born here. You could count them all on literally on two hands. So when we started, the idea uh, of Messianic Jews was a total new concept here in Israel. And uh, we began uh, the first, uh, you know, full of the spirit, Hebrew speaking, um, your congregation in, in modern Israel, and, and we started that way. And, and now, of course, there's many, many groups. We've been able to encourage a lot of people, and now there's a lot of people we don't even know. And uh, when we started, like I say, just a handful, and, and now maybe 30,000 more, you know, or more believers. Yeah. Are it's interesting that um, you mentioned in biblical times, the early church for a period thought that the gospel was, was just Jewish and they had to be convinced and read about it in the book of Acts that no, the gospel is for the whole world. 
Right. Do you think things have almost flipped round now? Because I think when most Christians think about mission, they think about, yeah, going to the nations, going to the ends of the world. And, and I think sometimes specifically Jewish evangelism or, or sharing your faith in Israel and, and Messianic Judaism, it's not, not always talked about so much, is it? So is it almost that, that things, the problem's now reversed and actually people need to be reminded of to the Jew first? Yeah, absolutely. And when we say to the Jew first, we're never saying to the Jew better. It just means there's biblical order. And the covenant was made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The Jewish people took it to the nations. And it took them a while to figure it out because every, even the Gentiles would meet in the synagogues. And they would say, listen, Gentiles do not have to become Jewish to be born again. But Jews do not have to become Gentile to be born again. We are to keep our national identity and our national purpose. There are things that only the Gentile nations can do in the body of the Messiah. Then there are things only the Israel can do in the body of Messiah. It's just like there's only certain things, certain things that only men can do, certain things only women can do. But we need to understand each other's role in God's overall plan so that we can endorse each other and encourage each other in our uniqueness. And we're uniquely different within the same body, but in unity of spirit and purpose. And I think this is the challenge that people come, they love Israel, but they don't understand that, you know, when they say, well, don't you want to be a Christian? And the Jew will say, no, you know, but if they say, do, do you want to have a personal relationship with God as a Jew? Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, how do, how do I do that? That's a whole different thing. And then we need to understand Jews are not better than Gentiles. Gentiles are not better than Jews. We are uniquely different and we need to affirm each other's in our purposes in God. What the nations do to the Jewish people and to Israel will affect what God does to the nations. Because the Messiah, he is coming back to Jerusalem. He's not coming back to New York City or London unless it's for a visit. You know, he's basically coming back to a huge, you know, to a body of people who are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists, and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. You've mentioned already the incredible the remarkable growth of messianic judaism within israel you say when you first arrived in israel there weren't any uh spirit-filled messianic congregations and now as i understand it there's hundreds so yes. remarkable remarkable growth but what would you say though to someone someone who says well the new testament talks about one new man jew and gentile together but what would you say to someone who's skeptical of a, of a messianic congregation and would say, well, shouldn't we have Jews and Arabs and Jews and Gentiles all together in the same churches? Do, should we really separate into, out, separate out into a messianic congregation or, or a Gentile congregation? Some would want to kind of bring those together. Yeah. Actually, uh, there is a lot of togetherness. I remember um, uh, many, many years I, I led a congregation and more than one congregation for maybe 37 years. And we have had many Arab Muslims come to faith in our congregation, in the Messianic Jewish congregation. There is a place. There should be a place for every congregation. If it's a Gentile congregation, there should be a place for Jews that can worship in the framework of the Gentile congregation if they feel comfortable culturally. But if a Gentile wants to worship in a Jewish congregation, they should be able to worship in the framework of the Jewish congregation comfortably. They don't have to become Jewish, but because they're in a culturally oriented Jewish congregation, they should flow with the culture of that congregation, but they should not have to be Jewish. We have uh, people actually from China, you know, that are students, you know, at the university, and uh, they enjoy the congregation, but we don't want them to try to be Jewish. We want them to be Chinese, but enjoy our Israeli culture in our, in our, in our, in our congregation, okay? Now, someone who says, I am called to become a part of the nation of Israel, that is, there is a biblical plan and a biblical purpose for a person becoming Jewish, meaning that he takes on the destiny of the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. That is a biblical pattern. I don't see any biblical pattern for a Jewish person to become non-Jewish. I don't see any biblical path 
for that. Uh, but there is a biblical pattern and a path. If somebody, not for the sake of having a better relationship with God, not for the sake of saying, well, I want to be a Jewish believer because it's better status. There's no such thing as that. That's foolishness. You know, I mean, I call that an inflammation of your Jewish gland, the absolute foolishness. There is your, it does not enhance your status as a believer, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile. I've spoken to, to Jewish people before who are very, very cautious, very reluctant whenever any words such as evangelism or sharing your faith or conversion, you know, just have a, have a gut reaction against that. And, and quite understandably, given some of the history, because, of course, sadly, in the past, when Christians have tried to share their faith with Jewish people, um, they've not done it in ways that today's Christians would recognize. I mean, we don't have to go into it. We know Christianity, there are terrible things in church history with violence and all the rest of it. So given that evangelism to jewish people in israel is actually incredibly controversial isn't it politically it's very very difficult it is politically controversial because of politics but as far as the general community the general israeli community is very open to when i use the term gospel it may be a little different than what the the gentile church uses as gospel the gospel is genesis through chronicles uh, but you say Malachi, okay? It's Genesis to that is the gospel. And so we believe that the most important thing is restoring the gospel. In other words, restoring what Moses said. When Israel will believe what Moses said, when Israel will believe what the prophet's saying, then they'll believe in Yeshua because they'll, they'll see the doctor's diagnosis and say, I've got a deadly spiritual disease. And I know when I teach the covenants, by the time I finish with the Mosaic Covenant, 99% of everybody, Israelis, are saying, they're either running out the door or saying, what do I need to do to be saved? That brings us to a Bible verse that's at the heart of your ministry, Ma'oz Israel, which you founded um, to support Messianic believers in Israel. And the verse is from Romans 11 that says, all Israel will be saved. What's your interpretation? of that verse. What exactly do you think that means? Well, I like to keep it simple. And, you know, we have several ways of interpreting the scriptures. It's called pardes. It's the, the simple, the, the teaching, the idea, and then the secret. And we always say when the secret is different than the simple, the secret is off. And so I always go for the simple first. All means all. And all means to me, it has to be enough that it, 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 you would say, everybody's coming. So maybe one person's left out. Maybe there's a few here or something. Maybe so. But it's so significant that it represents everybody. It represents, it could represent the nation. You could say, Israel as a nation has come to faith. So there is going to be some time in this histor historical uh, calendar when Enough of Israel, significant enough of Israel, will become will come into the new covenant. You can say all Israel will be saved. So I, that's how I interpret that, and um, you know I, I like to take it for that and work towards that goal. So you're you're looking at some point in the future from now for there to be, I guess, a revival, a mass turning of Jewish people of Israelis to to their Messiah. And that's something you you believe is is on the horizon. I believe so, and. You know, when it says in, in Zechariah, it says 10 people from every nation will take a hold of one Israelite, one Jew, because he says, I see that God is with you. Now, if you do the mathematics, and let's say there's 180 nations. So you've got 10 people from 180 nations holding on to the fringes of one Jew, one Israelite. I don't know. You won't even see them. In other words, we're talking about um, because they see God, they see that God is with the nation of Israel, not just uh, Israel's doing okay, but they see that the God of Israel, the God of creation is with. So there's enough scripture in there when it says in Joel, uh, you know, the scripture uh, we all pray and everybody prays, it says, and it shall come to pass after that, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Well, it says after that, the key word here is after that. If you go back to verses 23 through verses 27, it says, it talks about the physical and spiritual restoration of Israel. And then it says, 
after that, when Israel is no longer put to shame, when Israel is worshiping as a nation, when Israel is worshiping God, when God is given the Passover, Israel comes into their, their Passover. This prophecy was after they left Egypt. So when Israel comes into their, uh, in the first month, it says, in the first month is Nisan, that's Passover. So when Israel comes into their, their new covenant Passover, okay, then it says, after all of that takes place, new wine and, and, and new uh, wheat and new grain and everything. And it says, then I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So I think that there is a key here that God wants Israel. He's always want Israel, wanted Israel as a part of his salvation to the nation. Because I believe the plan is that Jew and Gentile go together to the nations uh, to bring the rest of the gospel out through the nations before it's all over. Many Christians would point to exactly what you've just said about physical restoration of Israel. Um, not all, but some, some Christians would see that as a fulfillment of prophecy, what's happening since 1948 in Israel reestablishing itself. And I'm, I'm aware you'd obviously support that. At the same time, a lot of those Christians will spend a lot of time talking about fulfillment of prophecy and wanting to support Israel practically and, and also politically support Israel but they don't always talk so much about salvation, about where Israel being saved, do they? No, I think that um, we have to keep the balance. We have to realize that the political Israel is a part of it, but it's not the end game. It's not about the, uh, the, the Israel as a nation. That's just part of it. It says in Ezekiel 36, it says, it says, not for Israel's name's sake, but for my name's sake. It says, I'm going to bring them back to the land. In the land, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on them. I'm going to wash away all their filth. I'm going to transform them. I'm going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. So there's a process here. It's like we pray for people that are not born again to come to our congregations, right? And so as we pray for them to come to the congregation, why? We want to pray for this ungodly person to come to the place where he's going to get godly. So when he comes to the place, he doesn't know the Lord, but we want that with the fellowship with the saints, with the believers, he will come to know the Messiah. Well, we got that from the Bible. And the Lord says, I'm doing the same thing. I'm going to bring Israel back when it says in Ezekiel 37, I'm going to bring them back as dry bones. First, in the first prophecy was, uh, there was a great noise and they came together bone to his bone. And it says they had flesh on them and skin and bone, but they had no spirit in them. It says breath, but the word in Hebrew spirit it said there was no spirit in them. Then he says prophesy the second time. And when I did, it, it says, then the spirit was blown into them. And then they came to faith. The same as, as the uh, previous scriptures. God says, I'll bring you back to the land. We'll have a political Israel. And it was formed by non-believers. And so, but Israel was formed by secular Jews. But then God says, now I've got you in the land. Now I'm going to bring you back to me. And it's very, very interesting. It says in Deuteronomy 30. And it says, after I've scattered you all over the world and you brought to mind all these curses that have come upon you, and you've returned to me, you and your families with all your heart and all your soul, I will bring you back to the land. Now, isn't this interesting? There's two dynamics going on here. God's bringing dry bones back to the land. And in the land, he says, I'm going to bring you back to me. But then he says, those Jews who are in the diaspora that have come back to me in the diaspora, I'm going to bring them back to the land. Did you know that all of the congregations that were started here, let's say 20, 30 years ago, were started by Jews that were born again out of the land, came to faith outside of the land, came back to Israel and began to breathe life into the dry bone. So the foundational congregations that are in the nation of Israel today were founded and the parent congregations of these were founded by born again Jews who were born again out of the country, came back to the land and began to breathe life into the dry bones and says it will raise up a great and mighty army. So the biblical pattern has been God will bring them back to the place as un, un, you know, not born again, but in the land, he will bring revival into the land. What would you say to a Christian who would say, you know, I love, love what you're doing and reaching people. Wonderful to see uh, Jews discovering Jesus, Yeshua as their Messiah, but would say, actually, my concern as a Christian is also for Christian Palestinians who are persecuted by the Israeli government. Perhaps they can't get out of Gaza. Perhaps there's issues in Bethlehem. You know, Christians in the Palestinian territories who, who 
person might say are persecuted by the Israeli government. What, what would be your message to, to a Christian who, who says that and says, actually, my heart and my concern is, is for the Christian Palestinians as much as it is for Messianic Jews as well? Well, actually, the, the Israeli position, in the first place, how did the Palestinians, the term Palestinian even started? Before 1964, there was no such thing. There were no people called the Palestinians. This is what people need to understand. Sure, but there are right now. And the well, argument I, would be that right, right now they're suffering. Right. Well, let me get to that point. And so what happened, who invited the people from Lebanon, okay, to actually come Arafat's over? Israel invited because they were not, they had been in Jordan, tried to take over Jordan, and Jordan kicked them out in a went into Lebanon, then Israel actually could have actually destroyed everybody in, in Lebanon. They didn't. They invited them down to Gaza. Okay. Israel several times throughout history says, we will even, uh, let's have peace. Let's have a state. But the position, the PLO position of Arafat, which started in 1964, who by the way was born in Egypt, and his position is on the, the Palestine Liberation Organization the fundamental principle is the destruction of Israel. This is the basic thing that people don't understand. Israel says, listen. I'm not, I'm not arguing about the politics of Arafat. I think the position a Christian would put to you is just, right. there are currently right. Christian Palestinians who I right. have a heart for who are suffering. And where do they fit into this picture? Well, this, that, is why I'm trying, this is why I'm trying to get to the point, because there's two issues here. There's the government issue of national security, which is not a spiritual issue. Okay, I mean, the government has to deal with national security. They are trying to say, we like to have peace. Anytime we want to have peace, we'll do it. But when you have an organization that's found on the principle that you can't, uh, uh, you can't make a peace because the only peace we can have is if Israel is pushed off from the sea. Politically, it's a very uh, untenable situation. The believing community reaches out very aggressively into the Arab community. And for example, Maoz, which is a very Jewish organization, supports more Arab ministry, including throughout the territories than probably any other ministry in the country, even though we're very strong on the Jewish thing. We can't tell everything we're doing, evangelism in the territory, supporting families, our I Stand program, literally uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year we, we put out towards reaching out. And the believing body in Israel is very, very pro, okay, pro-Arab and pro-Jewish. Is it not true that the average Israeli and the average Palestinian wants peace? There's just an Absolutely. awful lot of there's an awful lot of disagreement on how you get there, I suppose. Absolutely. The the majority of Israelis, in fact, Israelis in general want peace. Ninety-nine point nine percent of Israelis, with the exception of a few radicals, want peace, period, and are willing to give up a lot for it because Israel is a is a peace-loving people. However, because we live in a, a volatile world where our borders, people would like to destroy us, Israel's ready to fight wars because Israel is born into wars. You know, so we do have, we always have to remember this. I, I think God's policy uh, is in Jer Jeremiah writes on it. And I think it's either Jeremiah 12, which really speaks to it very, very uh, concisely. It's 12 verse 14. It's, it's very challenging. And it says, thus says the Lord concerning my evil neighbors who, who strike at the hair, try to take the inheritance which I have allowed, uh, endowed to my people Israel. Behold, I'm about to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. Now, God kicked Israel out of the land twice for not keeping the word of God. And, but he's also kicked out, and those are the sons of Isaac, but he's also kicked out the sons of Ishmael twice we're trying to take the land of Israel. Now, the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael, you know, we're talking about brothers. Okay, we're talking about family, sons of Abraham. God's intention, I believe, and I put it in uh, um, my book, I talk about the one new man. In the one new man, in the sons of Ishmael and sons of Isaac are supposed to work together. Anyway, let's go on. And so he kicked both out, but in compassion, he brought back the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael, said to their own land, always at the same time. Look what it said. And it says, and it will come to pass, come about that after I've uprooted them, I will again have compassion upon them. And I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance and each one to his land. He's talking about the sons of Ishmael now. He says, I'm going to bring them back to their land. 
all the land around Israel was given to the sons of Ishmael, okay, and Esau, all of it, okay? It's interesting, all the land in Israel was given to the 12, 11 tribes of Israel that they would defend the, the priesthood of, of the Levites. The Levites didn't have any land, all the, except what was in the walled cities, okay, and in the temple, but all the wealth and the army of the inheritance of the rest of Israel was to defend the priesthood. He gave all the land around Israel to the sons of Ishmael, the sons of Esau. And why do you think that would be? Well, to defend the priesthood of Israel for the sake of the nation, so that both sons of Abraham would work together. But what has happened is that all the, the nations around the nation of Israel want to take the land of Israel. It's a difficult situation and a very unfair situation to the Arabs or those who are sons of Ishmael who are called Palestinians now are disallowed by the Arab countries to go to any of those nations. And most of them came from those nations, whether they came from, in other words, the, the people that, that moved into Israel, they weren't born in Israel and their parents weren't. They came from the countries I, uh, around. I understand what you're saying and your interpretation of, of those verses for sure. I guess my question would just be, a Palestinian pastor, for example, who may, not, not all, but may have a different view of some of those scriptures, particularly with the return and on all the rest of it. But are there examples already, or could you foresee a time where you personally could work with a Palestinian pastor who has a very different view on some of those verses you just mentioned, but where you could unite at least around the gospel, by which I mean around the need for people to recognize Jesus is their Messiah, and actually still disagree over some of the interpretation of those uh, passages to do with the return, and still disagree perhaps um, over uh, certainly the politics. Could you foresee a time where actually a Palestinian pastor and yourself as an Israeli Messianic congregation could work together around the gospel? Or do you think actually those issues for you, that they're, they're too important, they're too close to the heart that you would struggle to work together? Well, I, I think this, I think the primary thing is to bring people into the kingdom and to bring people to God's point of view. I don't have a political point of view. I have God's point of view, and it may influence politics. I'm, I think I'm, everyone. I, I think everyone has a political point of view. If we're being right, honest, right, and and this is it. And I I do think, and I, as I say again, I try to keep it as as simple as possible, and not to say, well, history, you know, says this against the Bible, or so on and so forth. I think it's a real challenging issue. My personal experience is, and I work with a lot of. Um, we use the term Palestinians or Arabs in the territory. We have a lot of personal relationships, very strong personal relationships. And my personal experience is, is that those who have come to faith directly from the scriptures uh, and not from outside religious groups that have uh, a particular doctrine or are supported by certain religious groups of a particular doctrine um, are very pro-Israel. And the Israeli believers are also very pro-Palestinian and have no desire to kick Palestinians out anywhere. What they don't want is somebody trying to kick Israel out of the land that already exists. This is really the predominant thing that, which people outside of Israel don't see. Thing, and I see the Palestinian people as prisoners of this terrible attempt to try to destroy the nation of Israel. And I don't think that's their desire. I think the majority, we actually did a survey so you, you, could, you could work with, with the Palestinian pastor in question I just outlined. Do you think actually you could unite around the gospel in that sense? I think this. I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to get political about it. In fact, I wouldn't put myself in a situation where I have to deal with real political conflicts if that's their motivation. If their motivation is to preach the gospel, we'll do everything to help them to preach the gospel. Sure. That, that we will do. What we won't do and we can't legally do is is encourage them to do things that would be against the state of Israel. Of course. You know, so that's, that's the only thing. I wanted to ask how, um, how COVID has affected your ministry. I mean, COVID has affected the whole world. I know Israel has been through lockdowns a little bit like we have, as I understand it. Um, this must present some really real and pressing concerns for you, I guess, especially financially. Any charity that relies on donations, if people lose their jobs because of the economic downturn that COVID could bring on, that, that could affect your ministry. Uh, has that been a concern? Have there been other areas as well that, that COVID's been hitting you? Yeah, it does make a big difference. Uh, it, starting with the congregation, when you're used to fellowshipping several hundred people on a regular basis and a lot of social interaction, uh, when that's taken away for a significant period of time, at least six or seven months already, and uh, uh, it's um, very, very 
challenging and, and difficult uh, for families, for children, uh, for spiritual education, uh, just your normal lifestyle. And then, of course, the work situation. Uh, we've, uh, we have a program called I Stand with Israel, and we have personally helped well over five, 600 families with significant finances because without it, they would not have survived. And uh, so that's one of our big challenges, just to help families uh, survive. They have food on their table and they can pay their rent. You know, these are pretty significant uh, challenges. As far as the congregation is concerned, uh, we do miss that fellowship, but we have developed, like here we are on Zoom, and uh, we have developed um, uh, the internet uh, community in a way that probably wouldn't have developed uh, before. And uh, the high tech that is beginning to be integrated in the community is far more sophisticated than it's been in the past. Sure. Uh, but we, uh, it, it's not the same. It's not like, uh, you know, giving, giving a hug, you know, to somebody in the congregation, something probably we miss more than anything else, just reaching out and hugging one another and, you know, expressing how much we love each other in the Lord. And as you mentioned, because of the uh, financial stress on families, it doesn't impact uh, the finances for ministries that, including ours and every other ministry, uh, uh, that we need financial support uh, to, to be able to minister. Yes, it, it is an impact, but there is grace and the Lord is, uh, sometimes we're amazed how people just have a special desire to help in a certain area. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned how you've used digital technology and Zoom for church. I guess that's happened all around the world, but it did remind me, of course, last time I was in Israel, I had uh, the opportunity to go to Google's headquarters, uh, something not many people know about your nation, that it's incredibly tech savvy. I wish we had more time to delve into that and 101 other things. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Ari, for sharing. And if I may slightly misappropriate a phrase that I love, then maybe we can do this next year in Jerusalem, perhaps in person. Oh, that, that's a good one. I hope it was constructive. I tried to be as open as possible. And uh, okay, shalom, shalom, Sam. It was a blessing and, and blessings to you. And have a blessed week. Shalom, shalom.